This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Pierce Robertson, it's been a while. Thank you for joining me in the trenches again. Good to be with you again. Uh, you were quite busy recently, weren't you? Yeah, I was, yeah, I had to bail out, didn't I? Um, yeah, sort of my, my work seems to ev and flow in the sense of um, things are nice and calm for a while and then suddenly too many things happen all at once and <laughs> have too many things to do. I, I was always kind of like hoping to be in semi-retirement by now, but it, it doesn't seem to be quite happening. Maybe next year I'll be able to go on to like a, a part-time week. Have you had energy? I mean, Germany is pretty much in the middle of all of yeah. this nonsense. Well, well, the bills are going up, my wife tells me. <laughs> um, so it's, get, it's getting pricey, but, but we haven't had the blackouts yet. You know, there isn't sort of those kind of uh, claims which are being made in the autumn. Um, around the time that somebody blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. <laughs> oh, gee, be? I wonder who it could have been. <laughs> um. You know, they were talking about blackouts. Now they're talking about blackouts maybe in a year's time. Um, but we'll see about that. But no, there's, there's not a shortage, but certainly the costs are, are very much higher at the moment um, in terms of you know, heating bills and so on. Um, but we'll, we'll see, see how that plays out. Um, if you need any tips, uh, we South Africans mm. can help you when it comes to roading blackouts. Yeah, I, I've heard, I've heard, and and been witness, born witness to occasions when when the blackout seemed to be hit. It's, it's a bit 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 tough there, isn't it? Um, um yes. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, sure, go on. No, no, I was just saying, yes, it's very tough. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, sort of learning a few of the tricks of sort of resilience and self reliance and et cetera, et cetera, are things which uh, probably wouldn't go amiss for most people these days. So. Um, I, I, you said you were just out in the bush, so um, maybe you've <laughs> survival tips. The thing is that you have to see a silver lining where there is one. You've got to take the wins. I mean, if you're going to mm. be sitting like we are with eight to ten hours per day of no electricity, you either sink mm. or you make a plan. Mm. Yeah. You cope. People get, get by and they have to and adjust accordingly. And What is it that you do? Well, I, you know, I, I study and research areas of propaganda, and I come from an academic background. Um, but my main focus has always been on, on foreign policy and war, and then communications and media and propaganda. So um, that's the sort of area where I historically published on mainly. Obviously, I've been doing a lot of work on COVID in, in more recent times. Um, but that's, that's my, my background, um, war, media, propaganda international politics um yeah and your relationship with syria though is is quite specific yes it is so i mean syria is an area which i i, I embarked upon studying um in a way just as, as a natural progression of my research background you know i've been looking at uh, the iraq war um for a long time that's the 2003 invasion um of iraq and looking at questions surrounding media coverage, but then also looking at the um, manipulation of intelligence, uh, the notorious uh, 45 minutes from doom, um, 45 minutes to launch weapons of mass destruction dossier that the British public uh, government put out and so on in the run-up to that war. And then, of course, the Americans were engaging in their own manipulation of intelligence. And so I, I was, you know, I was for a long time looking at that, as many other academics were. And then I think it was about 2015 um, that I started to pay a little bit of attention to the war in Syria. Um, uh, and I can't quite remember exactly why, but I mean, obviously in Syria, the, there had been this ongoing question of intervention. Does the West intervene in, in the war in Syria? And there had, of course, been a, a famous commons vote over... Uh, possible intervention following the, I think it's the Guta 2013 uh, sarin attack, uh, which killed a large number of people. And so I was, I was familiar, it was going on in the background. 
And then about 2015, I, I think in some ways, just because my sort of, I was wrapping up my research and had written up and published my work on Iraq fully by then. Um, you can tell that academics take a long time. <laughs> Always well behind the curve. <laughs> no danger of influencing anything <laughs> with those kind of timescales. Um, and so I, yeah, so I started to look at Syria because it was obviously a major conflict. And then I became particularly interested, I think, when I, I suddenly realized how propagandized I'd been over the war on Syria. Because I, I was under the impression, and I suppose I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but then, you know, I was busy studying other things, um, that this was not simply a civil war going on in Syria, that there was massive external involvement in Syria. And I think it was that was when I suddenly sort of thought, right, okay, we I really want to start looking at this more closely because it started to become apparent that um, rather than just this kind of very simple vision of or impression of this or pro-democracy opposition groups trying to fight an evil, brutal dictator to regain democracy, this was a very inaccurate um, description of what had been going on from 2011 when there had been uprisings which ran in line with the, the Arab Spring, as it was called at the time. Um, and, and so I, I started to look at it then, and I, I with a number of colleagues um, who were particularly interested in the chemical weapons allegations, um, started to engage more directly with looking at it. Um, and that was when, around 2017, and, and that's when we started to get attacked um, for as academics for looking at Syria. And, and that seemed to uh, indicate even more strongly that this was a, a very important area to study. So the short uh, answer to your question, you know, I naturally moved on to Syria as a, as a result of, you know, this, you know, finishing on Iraq and then becoming aware that there was more to Syria. Um, and then, yeah, by 2017, and it started actually with George Monbiot, the wonderful British columnist from The Guardian, um, who I'm a great fan of, <clears throat> uh, just attacked me over social media out of the blue, uh, me and T Professor Tim Hay with it, um, Edinburgh University, saying that we had um, shamed ourselves, or words to that effect, on the issue of Syria. And as I sort of, wait, wait a minute, I've, I've never had any contact with this guy ever. <laughs> Um, I know who he is, obviously. Why is this guy suddenly attacking me over social media? Um, and then shortly after that, we, we had formed a working group called the Working Group on Syria Propaganda and Media. Um, and one of the people involved with that, Paul McKeague, had been particularly interested in looking at the alleged chemical weapons attacks in Syria. Um, and, you know, we set that up, and within about a week, we had a, a smear article from the former... Guardian journalist um, Brian Whitaker smearing us, <laughs> calling us uh, uh, sadists, um, conspiracy theorists, etc. And then, of course, that was well, this is weird. So we're a bunch of pretty unknown academics who've who've expressly said we're going to start looking at questions of propaganda and the war in Syria. Um, and you're getting these kind of hit pieces being written. Um, and then, before we knew it, we we're on the front page of the Times newspaper, as I think I've told you before. Um, as a sad apologist, conspiracy theorist, denying war crimes, that, that, you know, on and on and on. And it hasn't stopped since then. Um, what, what was that, 2018? Five years since, uh, five years has been just a continual flow of, well, not continual, but, you know, sort of targeted uh, attacks from, especially the Huffington Post, um, a man called um, Chris York, who now works for Kiev Independent, uh, in the Ukraine war, um, was attacking us then mainly the times and, and mainly on the chemical weapons issue, um, and so on. Um, and I think the scale and ferocity of, of the attacks on us indicated, you know, sort of we're onto an important research area here, obviously. Um, but that was, you know, that was my journey into studying Syria and, and what I've become primarily focused on. But, you know, but as part of that journey, and maybe the last thing I'll say in terms of contextualizing this is that, you know, it did become very apparent, and as I've learned more, that um, Syria is probably more accurately understood as, as a continuation of the regime change wars, which were initiated following that controversial event, 9-11. And I think it's safe to say now that it is a controversial event, <laughs> given the amount of information that is out there and so on in the public domain. Um, 
And it was the Chilcot Inquiry, which was the inquiry into the run-up to the Iraq war, the role of Britain, that released a whole set of documents where you can see Bush and Blair exchanging memos, letters on the stages, phases of the war on terror. And there's, there's a little quote in one part. It sort of talks about Iraq, Syria, and Iran. And I think Tony Blair says, well, you know, if, if, we, want, if we want to keep if we, if we want to keep uh, Iran and Syria on board, we, you know, we, we just focus on Iraq first of all and leave those countries to a later point, or words to that effect. But it's very clear, you know, that they were talking about regime change. Um, and Syria, you know, is, is, is a country they got to at, at, a, at a later stage, to come 2011. Um, as we know now, as was famously blurted out by Jeffrey Sachs on MSNBC, um, you know, Timber Sycamore huge CIA operation with uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, I'm not sure Qatar was involved with that, but certainly with Saudi Arabia arming jihadists who were going into the country um, and so on, a huge operation. Um, and so it's it's a regime change up, but it's a, it's a regime change up sort of post-Iraq invasion, which is, you know, very overt, kick the door down, send the troops in. And okay, public don't like that too much, kind of thing. So we'll we'll do it a little bit more covertly next time, and and that's broadly what we've had. I think if you look at the work of William uh, Wagner and look at the work of uh, Tim, now I've forgotten his name. Now um, he'll hate me for this. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, Max Blumenthal's uh, book on the war the Syria, I think, is very good from the grey zone. Um, and as your name will come back to me. But what you have is you have effectively a dirty war in Syria where whatever you think of the Syrian government and Assad, um, that there have been supporting groups who are extremists, who are pretty horrendous when you look at them on paper in terms of what they do. And it's been a regime change up to support those groups. Many countries have been involved, Turkey, Israel, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Britain, France, the US have all been involved in this regime change war to Russia. overthrow the Syrian government. And Russia, of course, came in to support um, the Syrian government and Iran has supported the Syrian government and effectively China has. Um, but it's been that kind of war. It's been a dirty war to overthrow a government that, that was not in line with us um and has caused obviously a huge destruction within the country but we're, we're, we now seem to be moving into a different phase now which we can come to maybe later in, in in the interview but certainly um that's the bottom line with the war whatever the reality of the pro-democracy groups early on in 2011 and as i've learned more and more that the, the scale of that seems to have become smaller and smaller um, there is a very vocal Syrian activist groups across Western countries pushing for the overthrow of Assad and so on. But as many people point out in his own in, in Syria, he's he has a lot of support from the population. But certainly, when you go back to 2011 now, and I think if you look at uh, William Wagner's uh, articles for the Liberty Institute, I mean he he's very confident that there was, you know. CIA, MI6 involvement in events right back in 2011. The pot was being stirred from very early on. And from very early on, sort of jihadists were going across the borders in, into Syria to try to uh, contribute to this effort to overthrow the Assad government. Um, and so I, I think really from the beginning, this, this thing looks like a regime change up. There's still some sort of, I think, space there for people who were genuinely wanting democracy um, and so on, or, or rather to change the political structure, because I don't want to make too many comments on, on the, the nature of, of the Syrian government itself and so on, because I'm not an expert on it, and I would decry it as non-democratic, etc. You know, it is what it is. Um, but it's it's over time to me, it's become more and more clear that whatever elements there were, the, these were clearly just a small part in a bigger drive to support groups which, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about you know, uh, al-Nusra, we're talking about Jaish al-Islam, for example, this is, you know, if we get onto the question of Duma and the alleged chemical weapons attack uh, in 2018, I mean, these are hardline extremist groups, these are people who decapitate people. 
and you know, it doesn't take too long on social media to see um, some pretty grim footage coming from some of the areas held by these groups. Um, so, you know, even if you were to sort of do this kind of cost-benefit calculation, go, well, you know, I don't particularly like the Assad government and so on, when you set it against the groups who are being supported, um, as Max Blumenthal labels in his book, this is a dirty war. You're supporting groups, um, extremist groups, in order to do your heavy lifting. Um, and so, and, and that takes us to where we are now with a sort of a country which is... <laughs> suffered under a, a dirty war regime change campaign for, well, you know, 11, 12 years now. It's an incredible length of time. Um, but, it, but it is it's certainly something which needs to be understood as part of the, the rolling regime change wars that we see accelerating with 9-11, mm. not necessarily starting. And there's a, a case to be made that what we saw in the 90s, of course, and Panama is, is, is a... Is a uh, an intervention which is, I've heard some people say, well, this is the beginning of the neocon wars. <laughs> um, and you, then you go to obviously the former Yugoslavia, etc. So th this thing was brewing, but certainly by 9 11, you, you have a clear acceleration of Western belligerence, um, open belligerence in the international system. And Syria is part of that um, and needs to be understood. Why Syria? Well, I mean, the simple, well, there are probably multiple ways of answering that. The way I would read it is, is that Syria, along with Iran, um, and actually along with Iraq as well, and of course, along with Libya, represented countries which were um, relatively strong and cohesive in terms of political structure and, and so on, um, and who weren't aligned with us. <laughs> I mean, if you look at if you look at the uh, Middle East, you, you've you've got the Gulf states and Israel, essentially lined up with the West, um, and you have you know you have uh, Iraq, Syria, Iran clearly not aligned with the West. So I, I think it's it's good old fashioned geopolitics, and again, if if you go back to the kind of the neocon documents from the nineties, I mean, and some of the language being used, I mean. I think it's Wolfowitz who, who made this comment um, to Wesley Clark, I believe. But, you know, this idea that you've, you've got to clear up these um, countries in the international system who aren't in line with us. And we, we have to use our military capability before the next superpower comes fully online, i.e. China. Um, and we need to use our force to do that. And, and I think that was the kind of, the kind of neocon rationale. And so on. So, you know, you've got countries who are standing up against um, the Western interests on the other side. And it's, as, you know, it's as simple as that. And um, so Iraq has gotten out of the way. Uh, Libya goes, obviously, in 2011. Um, and then Syria next. And presumably with the idea that when that domino falls, the path is clear to Iran. <laughs> um but you know something something went wrong somewhere along that that particular road, um, and obviously with the Russian intervention that requested the Syrian government to support it, um, and the involvement of Iran, and where we are now, we, we're clearly seeing you know is a case to be made that you've got the first clear sort of strategic failure in Syria of the regime, the rolling regime change ops. In the sense that you know they hadn't pulled out of Afghanistan by that point, you know they toppled Saddam, saying the Iraqi government was, was overthrown. Um, and if you then got this sort of continuation of the regime change wars, you then get to Syria, they actually fail. Um, and you know then you get a point around 2015-16, the Syrian government would support of Russia, um, and I think was support of Iran, etc. Um, is starting to roll back, regain the territory which had been taken, um, leaving it to where it is now, where you have the US with about a third of the territory, which is the oil fields, funnily enough, um, and then uh, Turkey controlling the Idlib pro province. Um, but quite a lot of territorial regain. But the key thing, of course, being that the Assad government has not been overthrown. So that's where the kind of the, the, the bump in the road for Western regime change um 
sort of operations, I think, starts there with Syria, or a case can be made that it starts there with Syria, um, which does kind of, you know, if you wanted a segue, that takes us on mm. to where we are now in the Ukraine. And yeah. I mean, it's looking to me, and if we're looking at the shifts, if we're looking at sort of, you know, the, the deal broker between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which was brokered by China last week, this is extraordinary. Mm. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia was was a linchpin in, in the war on terror. It was it was reordering the Middle East using the shock troops coming out of Saudi Arabia, the jihadists, etc. Um, and for that kind of realignment, where Saudi Arabia is real is got some kind of negotiated deal with Iran brokered by China, that that suggests you've got tectonic shifts now in the Middle East. Um, so the reason why I raise that is that is America, Britain and France, etc., going to be able to overthrow the Syrian government? I mean, it's looking less likely now, I never say never, but it's looking less likely now than it has been for, for a very long time. It looks like there's complete failure in that sense. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll see how things develop from here. But um, you know, it's maybe historically when people will look back at this, depending on what else happens in the world with you know, <clears throat> technocracy and all mm. of those uh, hor- nightmarish things which seem to be uh, in- emerging in various places. When, when this is looked back at, it, you know, as Syria might be looked back as you know as, as the regime change war, which represented the, the faltering of that strategy and then you know within six seven years the landscape that had dramatically changed and syria was restored back into to sort of the arab community as, as a respect respectable um member of of, of that group um and the regime change efforts come to an end but i think it's too soon to say that right because the americans are still pushing the sanctions they're still you know, mm. you can still see it in Europe. You can see it in terms of you know the chemical weapons narrative, which is continually being pushed. Um, that you know you've got a you've got an entire military industrial complex signed up to the regime change job, occupied by you know people in the private sphere. For example, this is one of the the stories of Syria is the way in which propaganda has been outsourced, etc., and how regime change in effect has kind of been outsourced. Um, you know, they all have, you know, they're keeping going with it. Um, but how long they can last with these changes that we're seeing now, I don't know. Um, you know, that there is a, a feeling that there's a change in the air now. But I could be speaking too soon. You know, uh, two things I've realized over the last few years that I've had completely wrong is uh, my support for pro-democracy groups because whenever i hear that phrase now i i get a bad feeling and because i mean i don't even know what they mean by that anymore and then the second thing is as you know i'm a political cartoonist and i've got books here that i published and if i go and look at the work that i did of assad and syria it's completely inverted um i wouldn't draw that now and what what worries me is that i am just one of many who've got the story completely wrong I'm a, I'm a victim of propaganda without realizing it. And I, I, and I suppose the question is, where does one begin with trying to navigate that fog? It's, it's incredibly difficult, isn't it? Because as I, as I said at the start of the interview, I, I was fooled by the propaganda. I, I was under the impression this was an internal civil war for a long time. And so when characters such as George Monbiot sort of tried to present themselves as being anti-war by saying, I'm against armed intervention in Syria, he's actually pulling the wool over everybody's eyes that we are actually intervening. <laughs> We're just doing it covertly, etc. Um, and so, so I completely bought that because I didn't have time to, um, to look at it closely enough. And so everyone's vulnerable to this even people who are you know sort of supposedly sort of credentialed and have experience studying propaganda you know everyone's vulnerable to not having the time to check out claims being made i mean i think i would say that you know okay the question is how does one navigate this i mean i think there's a bigger picture here isn't there now in 2023 with some of the kind of changes that I was just talking about, um, it's becoming pretty apparent that the West has 
engaged in strategic deceptions for a very, very long time, and that it is claimed to be fighting for democracy when it has, in fact, been supporting extremist groups, such as Syria being a very good example. Um, so th these things are, are lies, deceptions, which have been promoted by Western liberal democratic states. Um, as John Mearsheimer would probably argue, is that the reason why they, they promote with these narratives of, of bringing democracy is that the publics wouldn't buy it otherwise, or they wouldn't support it. You know, most, you know, I know that not everyone's nice, but most people don't like to think of themselves as part of a country or a group of countries who um, support extremist groups to overthrow governments and cause huge amounts. Of Most people want to think that we're doing the right thing. We're fighting the good fight, etc. Um, and so this is, you know, this deception, the strategic deception. It's a strategic deception from the realists, yeah, because you know the realists. Say, well, we know that we're not fighting in Afghanistan for democracy, or we're not fighting in. in Iraq or any of these places, but the liberals think, you know, for them it's more ideological. They actually probably believe some of the stuff that they're pushing out. Um, but, you know, but these things work together to, you know, maintain public support. But these are deceptions, they're lies. And the list is so long now. I'm sure you've seen it on Twitter, these, you know, all these countries which America has overthrown over the last 40 years. You know, is I think it's becoming pretty obvious that when our governments do make all of these claims, you know, the default position should be that they're probably not telling the truth. The, the, the West has become so embedded in its deceptions, whether it's deception over Iraqi WMD, weapons of mass destruction, or whether it's deception over 9-11 and what happened there, or whether it's deception over, as Tucker Carlson <laughs> launched into that territory before Christmas. Um, back to JFK, John F. Kennedy. Um, and, and I think, you know, that there is a case to be made that there is an arc from, you know, if you look at Eisenhower's warning of the military-industrial complex and you look at the arc from, from then through to now, this is, a, we've been on a long process where the military-industrial complex has grown and grown and become more and more powerful. Um, arguably interlinked with some of these entities that we now see in, in the COVID event. Um, but but that, that kind of reality that our system has been, in the West at least, turned into a kind of a permanent war machine, I think is very difficult to refute empirically or however you want to describe it. Um, and I think it's clear to a lot of people now that the West has been telling porkies for a very long time and, and so on. So... Um, the, way, the way you navigate it is just, well, <clears throat> now that's possibly not very helpful. So I, I'd, I'd hate to say that all government, you know, all governments don't lie all the time on every single issue, right? Um, it's just, I think, in, in the realm of international politics, I, I think this is the objective reality. And, and I think we're seeing now this very concerted pushback, whether it's through BRICS or whether it's through China or Russia and Ukraine or, or from the global south, this... You know, people have had enough, and it's uh, enough already. We, we know the West's game. We know that you talk and you patronize and all these talk about human rights, etc. But this is not what you're really about, and so on. Um, and that's, that's I think, seems to have come painfully clear to uh, everyone in the world, and, but also to many people in Europe, I think, and, and in America. There's, there's more people who are aware of these of this these strategic deceptions and, and how much the kind of Western liberal myth, well, how much of the liberal self-perception is myth, myth-building. Um, we're there to, to, to save people. Wasn't this always the case with empire and so on? It was always, we're, we're there to, you know, civilize, save, <laughs> um, and so on. So, yeah. <clears throat> Don't trust the Western government, especially when it comes to foreign policy, because they've got a long confirmed track record of deceiving. Yes. <laughs> but what triggered 2011 then? The Arab Spring. I, I mean, I remember it. And mm. it it started permeating North Africa and it was moving around various countries. And I remember Twitter had a role in this in terms of the spreading of the information. What What actually happened? 
Well, that that's a really good question, and 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 I'm going to be honest enough that I, you know, I haven't looked closely closely enough at that phase to talk, you know, in any great detail about it. Obviously, at the time, the way we interpreted it, or the way it was presented, was that it was this kind of Twitter revolution, right? Or or, or is social media? Social media has now fired up the imaginations and it's allowed these kind of communication links with, with the young disenchanted uh, youth in, intelligentsia on the street on the arab street and and they're now they're hungry for democracy <laughs> i mean it, there might have been an element of that yeah i wouldn't um you know and and also it might have varied from country to country i mean i i certainly know that People who have looked closely at the Syria 2011, the argument is that well, that there was a pro-democracy movement, but there was also a big movement in support of the Syrian government. Um, so it was it looked far less clear there than it did in perhaps other countries where you saw protests. There were, of course, protests in countries such as Saudi Arabia, but that didn't get much press coverage in the West. That's one of our allies, etc. I think in Libya, I mean, whatever was going on in Libya, it took it took NATO intervention to to finally get it all the way there, um, and so on. So, um, you know, what you're looking at is, is that there might have been some genuine sort of um, sort of mobilisation going on, um, but an awful lot of them pushing and exploiting. And as as we discussed with with Syria, it's fairly clear that you know you've got. So the armed groups being put in this big, this Tim Sycamore CIA operation kicking off, you know, from, from well, there's a dispute over exactly when it started. One is that it didn't really kick off until about a year in, and others say that no, MI6 were handling it um, right at, you know, as, as the uprisings were occurring, etc. Um, and, you know, there, there was evidence in, in support of that. But I think in, in the other country, you know, it, 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 you had a different, you got a different picture probably in different countries during the Arab uprising. But you certainly have, as much as there's evidence that there was some genuine sort of mobilization, you've also got sort of pushing and exploitation and then arming. And then in, yeah, in, in Libya, you, just, you had a NATO intervention, of course, um, or air power intervention. Probably, I, I can't remember if it had special forces on the ground. It wouldn't, I mean, these things normally do, right? Um, even if people don't find find out about it at the time, um, so so looking back at it now, you know, it, the um, the Twitter revolution, Facebook revolution, uh, looks less and less plausible and more like Western propaganda, <laughs> um, and so on to underpin what was going on. Um, I think that's um, so. How much was it fueled? Probably, probably to a, a significant extent, I would suspect. I suspect that when you go back and you look carefully, and and actually, I, I, that's a bit of a like I, I did with somebody that did start to look, started to try to look at the question of from the media empowerment thesis line of, of looking at okay, can these things be explained through reference to social media? Are these things spontaneous? And I remember I did spend some time, and, and I know Gaddy Bullsfeld, a colleague uh, in Israel, was looking at it as well. And quite quickly, the, the sense was that, well, these things, uh, it's, this is being overblown. These things can't just be explained to recent reference to Facebook. You know, countries have had revolutions before, right? <laughs> and so on. So, so even then, it was, it was fairly clear that there was a lot of overclaim being made, that these were in some way spontaneous social media generated events um so i i think that's that that's the best answer i can give i mean and and with time it looks they, they look less and less spontaneous and more and more orchestrated and boy i mean where we are now the ukraine everything that mm. anyone who cares to look you know whether it's you know the original overthrow of the government in 2014 that the, the types of groups who are being sponsored by the west um and so on um you know this is this is all part of the playbook which 
as with the deceptions in, in Western foreign policy, these are all part of the playbook, which everyone, this has happened so many times now. It's, yeah, this is, this is how the game is being played um, by Western governments, but also their intelligence apparatus, the deep state, whatever you want to call it, the, the yeah. game of overthrowing governments, fermenting dissent, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then... What is the segue into the Syrian war? Because that was also 2011. Oh, do you mean as part of the Arab Spring? Yes. And I'm then, not quite and, following the question. Well, yes. The, I mean, the beginning of the Syrian war started in 2011. I suppose you could argue that it was linked to the Arab Spring, but I'm not sure. This is what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, that, that's certainly the, the way it's presented, that it was mm. part of um, this widespread growing... Uh, disenchantment combined with a new uh, transparency created by computer technology or uh, the internet, etc. Um, that, that, that's where it came from. Um, I mean, some people are tracing back. Um, I mean, there is a famous television interview with a former British, uh, French foreign minister whose name I forget. Um, and he actually said on French television, said like, well, in, in in 2009, I was approached by some people from MI6 and asked if we wanted to join a regime change operation, um, and so on. You know, I think the guy got a, got away without being targeted too heavily by the French intelligence services for, for blurting that out on French TV. But you know, but you know, there is a sense in which how how to what extent were actors behind the scenes trying to sort of lay the lay the groundwork to create an overthrow. Um, I mean, I did, we started, didn't we, with the Chilcot Inquiry, and I was talking about the documents exchanged between Bush and Blair, and there is, a, there is a, a great document where Bush actually just runs through the plan on Iraq. And remember, this is, this is in the weeks after 9-11, and they're talking about attacking Iraq, and, and Blair talks about, well, we, we start by sort of ramping up the sanctions, getting some sort of more negative publicity for Iraq, and then we start supporting groups internally. And, and then when uprisings start, then we come in and, and so on. And he just lays out this kind of plan. So, you know, the, the obviously, obvious question begged by that is, okay, is that roughly what you have going on with Syria? That you have uh, the groundwork being laid for a regime change up. And then when the opportunity arises, when there are some protests which you can either take advantage of, or you can even instigate um, and then sort of worsen and then take advantage of that to, 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 to intervene and, and to sort of start having sort of groups going into the country. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that seems to be a fairly plausible scenario with the case of Syria. So, um, you know, although it is associated with, in terms of the kind of the, the common or the mainstream vision of what happened. This was part of the Arab Spring. Um, I mean, even if the Arab Spring was genuinely happening in other countries, there's a good there's an argument to be made that no, there was a there was a carefully constructed regime change up. And if anyone thinks this is a sort of batshit conspiracy, <laughs> you know, go back and look at the Chilcot report and look at the look at just look at the very blunt, you know, honest talk between Bush and Blair about when to do their regime change ups. You know, they're not hiding it. Well, they were, because these were all secret memos at the time. But in terms of their conversations with each other, they're, they're very, they were very blunt about it. This is how we go about, etc., and and so on. And it was, you know, no reason to think that wasn't the case with Syria. Um, and well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, we we all know about Victoria Newland and her yeah. very her very blatant attempt to change the regime in Ukraine. Yeah, attempt. Well. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, this, this is you know, the, the point you know, that came up with one of your questions is that we're just now at this point where for anybody who cares to look, the, the evidence is so strong of, of essentially nefarious, underhand involvement um, in countries to overthrow governments. And, and it's almost not that I'm really following the, the speeches of either Putin or, or, or any of the other global leaders, but I mean, the, the sense I'm getting is that, you know, for people who, who are 
sort of more closely involved at the UN level, is that there is this kind of, you know, people are fed up with the claims being made by the West. There's this kind of recognition that we all know what the West has been doing for a very long time. Um, and, and it seems to me that the, these kind of comments are even coming out in the speeches from leaders around the world. Um, I, could, I could be wrong there. If not leaders, certainly in terms of the, the, you know, the commentary and analysts and so on, um, are saying, well, the, the tide is turned now. Um, the, you know, the, con, the geopolitical context is, is profoundly changing. Um, and everyone's kind of realized now and had enough. And it's time to change. Um, I mean, I think I, I, I could. I, I think the Chinese, one of the Chinese farmers, or was it? I, mean, I, I just caught a little bit of a tweet, and and it was something about the rules-based order that the West keeps on talking about is is nothing but uh, might is right. It's it's a, it's a mask for Western power politics, um, and I think broadly speaking, that's that's accurate. Um, so I, I think you know the the wheels of in a way, I think the wheels have come off um, the Western war machine. And it is a war machine, and I think that's an accurate way to describe it. Uh, I know Obama left office, didn't he, talking about the permanent war machine. Mm. Um, said he couldn't change course. You know, Washington has got there's a war machine underlying this. As, as we mentioned before, Eisenhower was warning about this. JFK, just reading The Unspeakable, the um, uh, book, about the JFK assassination, and he, according to this book, was clearly trying to change course uh, to try to, you know, try to end the Cold War um, and to gain some kind of more sort of cooperative uh, uh, context with with the Soviet Union, etc. He was clearly, well, according to this book, trying to change course, and um, he was obviously stopped in his tracks from being able mm. to do that. Um, you know, the, these things are all there, and, and we, we, you know, people such as yourself and me are at, at this point, I'm obviously a bit older than you, but at this point, you know, watching the Western Empire uh, unravel in some ways, um, or, or at least get to a point where it's the pushback is so clear and so blunt. I'm just thinking, you know, people in the foreign policy establishment, and I'm sure that there are many who know that we have to change course. Uh, I hope that they start to raise their voices a little louder um, to the politicians say, look, this is, you know, this is time to change. It's like Britain and the Suez crisis and, you know, the British Empire. You know, when that came off the rails, it became clear to the British foreign, foreign policy establishment that the empire could no longer be maintained. We didn't have the clout to be able to do it. And so decolonization then started to occur. So there was that kind of wake-up moment, right, with Suez, um, with the Suez crisis. And, and one, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of asking myself, well, at what point do we hit this wake-up moment for Western foreign policy establishments? Um, I mean, is it strategic failure in Ukraine where it becomes, you know, obvious that the territories which are now Russian cannot be regained without massive mobilization of troops that where are they going to come from? Mm. I mean, you know, um, will strategic failure there be the wake up moment? Um, will it just be a more slow, painful, you know, shift globally and, you know, the, the kind of the emergence of BRICS, um, of finance markets, banking system I mean this is the chatter going on in the background isn't it that you know there are some very big events likely to happen soon etc um, that the kind of the, the finance well the, the finance system is, is broken and is not sustainable um, you know the reserve currency all of those issues which point towards a major change restructuring of the global financial system um, on terms which won't be dictated by the West, <laughs> uh, all of those things could maybe they'll coalesce to create finally an understanding, a strong enough understanding amongst enough of the people who are in positions of power that the West just has to call it quits on what it's been doing. 
whether it's you know invading countries or regime change wars or you know we haven't had time to talk about it today but you know the, the chemical weapons narrative which is promoted and constructed in, in the case of Syria um, you know that these things are not tenable so you know it's Got a kind of hope, haven't you? Chat that at some point it will come to an end. <laughs> Chat to me just a little bit about that because that was a fairly big narrative. The chemical weapons. Yeah, yeah the, the the chemical weapons and the torture narrative are the two main planks of delegitimizing the Syrian government. And you know, the Syrian government has been repeatedly accused of carrying out chemical weapons attacks in Syria. And, and how I often describe it to people is it's a little bit like the Iraq WMD narrative. Weapons of mass destruction was a deception. They manipulated the intelligence. But they, I think with Syria, they ended up carrying on this idea that we can demonize the Syrian government to legitimate all of these regime change ops uh, by making them out to be kind of um, perpetually, continually using chemical weapons against their own population. Um, and so it's, and it is a major plank. And of course... My my sort of uh, sort of involvement is to the extent of you know studying it initially, but then um, uh, what you have with these alleged chemical weapons attacks in Syria is that you have this organization called the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, who send in inspectors to see did an attack occur here. Um, and then in 2018, there was an attack in Douma where 43 civilians uh, were killed. And uh, France, Britain, and America bombed very, very quickly. Um, we were studying that, looking at that. And then about a year after that, after the, um, uh, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons had issued its report saying, basically saying, you know, that this was a real chemical attack and, and implying, suggesting that the Syrian government had carried it out. Um, then within a couple of weeks of that report coming out, I think my working group had already said that, look, the report doesn't look accurate or, or rather it looks very questionable. But then we were leaked an engineering report, which had been created by one of the inspectors. Um, and then events after that, there was then, um, a series of, of leaks um, and then it became very apparent that at least um, two of the scientists who were on the OPCW inspection team um, were basically saying, wait a minute, <laughs> the investigation has been novelled and so on. Um, and, you know, I, I now currently work alongside Jose Pistani, Richard Falk um, and Hans von Sponick. Um, Pistani was the first director general of the OPCW. Um, but what we're, we're trying to do is to, is to gain accountability at the OPCW for um, the issues raised by scientists who are involved in the investigation, who are basically saying, you know, in, in one way or another, that the, the, the investigation was, was corrupted. Um, it reached a predetermined conclusion, which could be pointed at the Syrian government and so on. Um, and so that's what I've been heavily involved in. And... You know, and again, sort of putting this in, in a broader context, you know, that there has been these continual allegations of chemical weapons attacks. When it comes to Duma, in, in a way that the, in 2018, I think it had become apparent to many people that these attacks look, didn't look genuine. They didn't look authentic. They looked so they're being staged, etc. Um, and, and that was, you know, gaining traction, etc. But then at the point of when the OPCW went in there, then I, I think sort of the distortion of the investigation was, was so acute that even people within the organization weren't willing to tolerate it. And so this is why you had this series of leaks and, and so on. And, and then some of these scientists, um, or at least one of them, talking about what had happened. Um, and, you know, and, and then you go back and you look at the earlier alleged attacks and you have all the same problems. You, you have this situation where uh, groups who are aligned with Western governments are collecting evidence and passing the evidence to the OPCW, the White Helmets, for example. Um, you then look at the OPCW and, and you see that their fact-finding missions are not controlled by the scientific divisions, but controlled by the Office of the Director General. And then you see that the office, the the, the, um, the office of the director general is then the, the 
the chair there is is, is nearly always a, a career diplomat from one of the countries involved in trying to overthrow the Syrian government. So you, you have a setup there where you have investigations which are, are vulnerable to this kind of political control and influence. Um, and and this is this is the reality. And this I mean, I've looked I've been studying it long enough and and worked on it, and I've obviously had contact with people uh, within the OPCW over the years in relation to this. Um, and it's very clear that you, you have a very organized deception operation where you've had staging of chemical attacks, normally quite low levels, sort of some release of, of a chlorine gas, for example. Some witnesses say, oh, that was, and, and then it's labeled as a chemical attack. Then you have the higher profile ones where you've got dead civilians. And in the case of Duma, you know, all of the evidence points towards these civilians having been probably murdered by Jaish al-Islam and then used as part of uh, the, the scenes that were then broadcast around the world. So, you know, Max Blumenthal's book, A, a Dirty War, <laughs> um, you know, this, Syria has been a dirty war. And I, and I think this kind of creation of, of these alleged chemical weapons attacks has, has been a part of that. Of course, you get pilloried extensively for, for raising these questions, for saying that, that these things aren't accurate, and yet accused of being a, a war crime denier, etc. And, that, and that's been one of the problems of mainstream media being uh, reluctant to touch it. But um, but that's that's reality. And, and, and the evidence, certainly from the Duma 2018 alleged attack, and then with all the material which has come out of the um, OPCW, you know, leaked documents, etc., um, you know, it's, it's, it's very clear. Um, that there's been a manipulation and a distortion of that international organization in order to underpin the claims coming from Western governments. Um, it's, it's an incredible story, and I'll probably be spending many, many years writing yeah. various aspects of it. Um, but, it but it is very big. And, and of course, the, the point here is that these allegations and the use of the OPCW you know, this can work in relation to the Ukraine. It can work in relation to Iran. Of course, Jose Bastani himself was kicked out. He was first director general of the OPCW, as I said. He was kicked out in 2002 in the run-up to the Iraq war because he wasn't playing ball with the Americans. Um, sure. You know, you know so, so you've, got, you've, got, you've got a huge history there of 20 years of this sidelining or, or, or this, this conversion of, of an organization into essentially a tool for Western governments um, in, in terms of their promotion of war. Um, so it's a huge story and, and it's, it's a key part of, I think, understanding sort of how we have got to where we are today with, mm. you know, war in, in Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria, etc. This is a very important part of understanding. Um, and and then then for me, you know, this is a this is you know we, we've I studied Iraq and WMD, and it's well he, here we have it going on again. Um, but you know, um, it is amazing story. You mentioned the white helmets. My understanding, correct me if I've got this wrong, is that they are essentially um, a type of shadow government that's funded by the US and NATO? Well, the, the White Helmets are one strand of the propaganda operation which was funded out of the UK. And, and, and the White Helmets were, you know, uh, first responders who were there to save lives, but also to document war crimes and also... As, as we know now, became increasingly involved in these alleged chemical weapons attacks in terms of organizing witnesses and so on, and possibly more involved than that in terms of staging. Although my suspicion is that you, you have sort of Jaish al-Islam doing a lot of the work and then the white helmets there. But they're, they're almost like this window dressing for the West's policy. So you, you have these humanitarian white helmets who are there probably saving some people, yeah, that, that probably is part of what they're doing. But then they're also caught up in, in the um, chemical weapons narrative as well and promoting a particular understanding of the conflict. And, and, and they have been, yes, a major component of uh, this sort of, um, sort of positive veneer um, to disguise the reality of, of, of the West policy. Um, there have been other components. The chemical weapons narrative has, has been a separate strand 
which has interfaced with the white helmets. You also have uh, CJA, the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, which sounds all neutral and, and justice orientated, but it's, it's essentially there to try to um, find evidence of war crimes carried out by the Syrian government. So you have this sort of architecture created. Um, you know, on all of these, whether it's CJA or the White Helmets or the chemical weapons issue, you, you have these kind of NGOs, these funded NGOs who are part of uh, this network and part of the information flow and so on. Um, and and I think that's the best way of understanding the White Helmets. So they're one component of this wider sort of Western propaganda drive to delegitimize the Syrian government, try to sort of, you know, sort of focus on these nice guys that we have saving people, etc., um, and to keep attention away from the extremist groups who are being um, supported and armed, etc. Um, and you know, and and again, that's not to say that there aren't probably you know white helmets there who are saving some lives. I know that there are some people, such as Vanessa Beely, who who argues that she's never seen any evidence about it. These seem to be through and through paramilitary groups effectively integrated with the extremist groups and so on, and you can't really tell the difference, uh, is her claim. People on the other side say that these people are pure in the driven snow and they, they don't engage in anything other than saving lives, which clearly isn't true. Um, there's, there's obviously a number of activities which are going on. Um, but it is, and I think the, the kind of the, the direction of your, your initial question was, was, was spot on in the sense that the white helmets can be seen as this part of trying to recreate civil society. And of course, Syrian civil defense, SCD is, is their technical term, the Syrian civil defense is actually exists as part of the Syrian government. The Syrian civil defense, SCD, white helmets is not even internationally recognized. So this is part of creating this embryonic replacement structure um, for when the Syrian government falls. Obviously, that's failed, um, but but I, I think that was part of the kind of rationale for it. Um, but I, I, I guess you know the the, the, the final point I make on is is, is that, however, without getting into this kind of idea of you know are, are they do you know are they saving lives or not, and and they might well have been saving a lot of lives. I'm not saying that they were, but. They might have been doing that, but at the same time, the key part of their function is just to disguise the, the you know, the, the supporting of extremist groups. Yeah, it is to try and present the, the war in simplistic black and white terms. So in that sense, it's a deception, um, and so on. Or that the most important part of the white helmets is, is that it is a deception, and I think that's a, you know, a fair argument. So you know, they they could be saving some lives as part of this. You know, but this is part of trying to disguise the reality of what's going on in, in the war, um, and so on. So, um, but it, but it's a very big. It's a, it's a ten year operation, right? I mean, mm. and and it's it's involved these ex military people like James Lemessurier who died coming off a building in um, Istanbul after some of the controversy started to emerge over the um, OPCW. In fact, um, you, you got these ex military contractors, people like Hamish Breton Gordon, who pushes the the chemical weapons stuff and so on. These are ex military setting up companies. Then they're involved in, you know, it could be public relations, it could, et cetera, et cetera. So you can start to see this kind of network of outsourced activities with former military people and so on. And, and I think, you know, there's a big thing to be learned there about the, the way of Western warfare, at least from 2010 onwards, um, is that you have this kind of outgrowth of these um, uh, sort of private companies involved, and you see it, of course, with the private military firms, um, and so on becoming increasingly important. But it, it it does create this incredible layer of um, that there's this distance between the activities and the government, so, so accountability is lost. Yeah, and of course, this is the criticism of private military contractors: is that you know they're not subject to the rules of, of war and so on in the way that to full you know, troops of from a country would be. And so you have that accountability issue, but you also have, um, you know, there's a lot of money flowing around. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't want to get into the territory of saying anything where somebody might 
want to take me to court over. But, you know, there's a lot of money flowing around. And certainly some of the work that my working group was doing, looking at some of these groups, was looking at their financial records. Because the other, the other issue with um, outsourcing is that it allows governments to have some distance. But then, of course, it becomes very easy for anyone to actually go to a company's house and look up the records of these companies. So you can actually see these companies being set up and, and the money flows, et cetera, and then do FOIs and, and see what money's coming from various governments, et cetera. So it actually creates this transparency for people who are willing to really do the digging, et cetera. But you know, you've, you've got a lot of money flowing out into this network of outsourced activities, um, which you know I think can be cause problems from an accountability point of view um and and so on and that has been some of the issues that have been raised over the years in relation to the white helmets but also other groups that there are question marks over um money and where's it going etc um I, I believe that one european state pulled funding after concerns over where the money was ending up and so on so you know you, you have um what what's what, how would you describe it it's the, the, the whole setup is 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 ripe for all of these kind of problems to emerge. Um, if you're standing then on the the battleground of this information war regarding Syria, and you're looking out into the distance, what is it that you see? If you asked me that question five months ago. I think I think I, I, I might have said this is just gonna in ten years time when you, everything has calmed down and people have stopped pushing the propaganda etc. In ten years time, I, I think um, some people will come and look at this and they will see the reality of what was going on. You know, the historians will be able to write more objectively. The social scientists will be able to do more objective work. But it would take that long that this this thing is so. It's a bit like 9-11. It's so in, in, in the spotlight of, of the propaganda drive and people like me, whether it's me or whether it's OPCW scientists, you know, get hit very hard with smears and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but now with the, what we're seeing and, you know, with this kind of, whether it's Nord Stream in Ukraine or these shifts in the in the Middle East, it seems to me that things are changing very very rapidly. And so I, I, I'm wondering, um, the people who are pushing the propaganda, and that they're all essentially part of the Western war machine. I'm wondering how much longer that they can last, um, and linked with that, how much longer the Western war machine can really keep pushing. Um, so I'm sort of. I'm not looking for any sort of, I don't think there'll be any great sort of relief or victories for me personally in in, in the near future. But I think in general, I, I think there's going to be, we're going to reach a kind of a tipping point where um, Nord Stream is a good example. I mean, as far as I'm aware, no one on the street buys what the American government and the German government are saying about Nord Stream and so on. But, you know, the lies are so big and the awareness is so full that people will just be going, well, we know about that. We also know about JFK now. And, you know, the fact that there might have been deception over Syria, etc. well, of course, you know, that's just part of this bigger. So I, I think, you know, it might be sooner rather than later now that there, there might be some backing down. I could be wrong there, but, you know, you and I were having these conversations a year back about COVID and look at how far that thing has unraveled now. I know that we still have a long way to go, but I mean, you know, there seem to be a lot of people who are, who are waking up and smelling the coffee on that issue. Um, so so I, I, I see it potentially sooner rather than later getting to a point where the people who are already pushing the lies give up um, and then there's space for people who have been trying to tell the truth just to tell it, <laughs> tell the truth, get it written up, get it written down, get the books out, the articles out, all that kind of thing. Um, so on, on Syria, um, people could look up Berlin Group 21, BG21, and that's the, the, the group with Hans von Sponek, um, Bastani and, and Richard Falk. Uh, and that will give some details on the Syria chemical weapons um, issue. 
the, the other thing is to look for the working group in Syria propaganda and media because this was this was what led us down the road, which ultimately sort of got me involved in the OPCW issue. Um, but we've got a lot of briefing notes there on the chemical weapons Syria issue, um, and that's a good place for people to go to. There's also other material there um, which people might find of interest. Um, so I, I recommend those two sources. Um, uh, other than beyond that, I think Tim Anderson's work is good. Vanessa Beely is very good. Uh, William Wagner is very good in terms of his writing up on Syria. Max Blumenthal, R and Mate, both at the Grey Zone, uh, do a lot of good work on Syria. So I think if people want to learn more about this, the, this war and, and so on, all those names that I ran by, and um, you know, feel free to, to put some of those links in, in the show notes. And you're also on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm on Twitter. Um, what's my handle? Um, <laughs> I follow you, but I can't remember either. No, no it's, it's, it's Piers Robinson 1. Um, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm on Twitter. Well, actually, I mean, the links to all the organizations I'm involved with, which, of course, includes Panda and also Organization for Propaganda Studies, and we have Propaganda in Focus, our magazine now. Um, so people can check that out there if they look at the Twitter. Um, uh, my Twitter handle or whatever you call it, where you detail all this stuff. Um, <laughs> Are we getting yeah. old? <laughs> no, I'm just, just getting tired. It's late. It's 10 past eight. It's getting close Me to my too. bedtime. <laughs> I have to go finish watching a movie with my wife. <laughs> oh, what are you watching? Um, old, uh, some oh, I shouldn't movie. have asked that question. <laughs> no, no, we're watching a, some, some old one called P.S. I Love You with Gerard Butler. Oh, okay. So check that things. Sweet. My wife gets to choose the movies. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, that happens to me as well. A good, good after sun is a good movie that's out. That's a nice movie. After sun, after sun. Okay, I'll look it's it a up. Serious movie, but you know, but nice, but very thought provoking. Come, highly recommended. Piers Robertson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Good, good to talk. And talk soon. So my name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfe, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.